welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, Tarun and I chat with two Yearn core contributors, Traik and Faku. We talk about the origin of the Yearn protocol, what it does under the hood, a look back at last year's DeFi summer, we talk DAO management, and what's next. But before we jump in, I want to encourage you to jump into the Zero Knowledge podcast community and maybe join the conversation over on our Telegram channel. There you can stay up to date on events, get news about the podcast, and also about the larger ZK community. It's a great place to ask questions, and there are a lot of helpful people in there to help you out. I also want to thank this week's sponsor, Mina Protocol. It's a project that I am an advisor on and one where the Zero Knowledge Validator also runs a block producer. Mina is the world's lightest blockchain, powered by participants. It's a layer one protocol creating a private gateway between the real world and crypto. The entire chain is about 22 kilobytes, even as it scales, thanks to recursive ZK snarks. This protocol replaces the traditional blockchain with a zero-knowledge proof, ensuring a super light and constant-sized chain that allows participants to quickly sync and verify the network. And snark-powered dApps, called SNAPs, allow access to verified real-world data from any website for on-chain use. The ecosystem is growing fast and the mainnet is live. So visit minaprotocol.com to find out more today. I've added the link in the show notes. So thank you again, Mina Protocol. Now here is our episode all about urine finance. In today's episode, Tarun and I are chatting with Tracheopteryx and Faku, both core contributors at Yearn Finance. Welcome to the show, guys. Hi. Hi, hello. In this episode, I hope we get to dig into the Yearn protocol, talk a little bit about DAO management, what's coming up for the project. But I also am just excited to talk to a DeFi project today because there's so much going on with basically MEV and the emergence of L2s. And I just want to kind of get a sense for like how you're approaching those kinds of topics as well. I'm also really glad that Tarun is with us to be the co-host for this episode. Tarun, I feel like you're well-versed in all things yearn. Hey, well, I, I guess I was around when it started, but <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was on the multi-sig for a while. Let's start off with a little bit of an introduction to Yearn. What is the Yearn protocol? Well, yeah, I think all, all three of us can probably answer this in different ways. Um, but it's you know started off as a yield aggregator, and it continu- that continues to be our main product uh, as a way to you know really easily earn yield off of different stablecoin assets. The product autonomously uses various other DeFi protocols to do that. And since then, we've also created a number of other things and also just a community and culture around innovation. Let's go back to the beginning. Tarun, you just said you were there at the beginning. What is the beginning of Yearn? Where does this start? So basically last summer, I remember a bunch of people were like, hey, do you want to join this random Telegram chat? And I was like, ah, no, it seems kind of like, you know, I think right after Compound Farming launch sort of. There were a lot of kind of sketchy things, and I was like, ah, I don't really want to join. And then at some point, Michael Igorov from Curve was like, hey, this is ver- a legit project that's trying to like go past the strict yield optimization of just like allocating to like two or three protocols, but like actually wants to 
execute these strategies and they have some questions. And so then I joined this group and I was like, whoa, this is actually crazy that this is moving at like the speed of light compared to everything else in DeFi. Um, and I think it had this like kind of ephemeral talent aggregation that I haven't ever seen since and haven't seen, you know, like before, at least for for DeFi, where like all these people like got really who kind of had different expertise kind of joined this like traveling band for, you know, like <laughs> a month and somehow it like aggregated this insane amount of capital and interest. And it was something that I think like initially it seemed something like something that like wouldn't be kind of seemed very short lived um, in the sense of like, oh, are these farming rewards going to be around long enough for this to work out? Does this idea of like a farming aggregator that kind of sells all the yield farm tokens instantly make sense? Or will it actually like kill all the farms because it's dumping all the coins and Mm. stuff like that? But it became much more clear that the end user does not want to learn how to yield farm themselves. They just want to like click one button and get interest as if it was a bank. And so it was interesting to to learn all of those lessons in like this like two week period where (laughs) everyone and their mom was starting a new (laughs) yield farm. Trake, what was the beginning like for you? And when did you join the project? Well, I thought that was a wonderful uh, description. And, you know, what happened for me is I wasn't in DeFi. You know, I'd been tracking crypto for, you know, since 2010, but had been doing a number of other different things. And um, my friend messaged me, buy Wifey, you know, YFI, our other oh, token, yeah. you know, last summer. I was like, oh, what is this? And I looked into it and I was like, holy shit, like, this is awesome. Like, what's going on here? DAOs are working. And not only that, but this amazing guy, Andre Crone, gave away like all the tokens. And I was just blown away. I, I talk about this period as a kind of inflaton field, which was, the moment after the big bang when like, you know, all the particles and and soup of the world kind of came into being. And the end of that moment was the cosmic microwave background. You've got this imprint of that moment forever and it crystallized everything around us. That's kind of what happened, but it was a magic spell that he cast, you know, through this incredible act of integrity and generosity. And it called people in. Like I was just like sucked in and uh, I was spending, you know, 12 hours a day, just doing stuff with the urine crew. And, and this was like, you know, last July, August. And that's how it started for me. Did you, ha- were you working somewhere else at the time? Like, did you have a full-time gig that you were kind of sidelining or? <laughs> I was kind of retired writing a uh, science fiction novel. So I, I signed oh. that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. How, how far are you in that? Have you revisited it? The novel? Yeah. Oh, God, uh, I think about it occasionally, but no, I, I put it, I, I, I will finish it eventually. It's a good okay. story, but. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. Faku, let's hear your story of how you kind of learned about Yearn, when you got involved, yeah, what that beginning looks like for you. My story is similar to Drake's, but different in some sense. I was out of Ethereum, so I was dipping my toes into Ethereum. I used to work with open source software a lot. So I heard of a DAO that was forming up, that it was YDAO, and I had some free tokens that I got farming that was YFE. Uh, you had to pledge those, those tokens. So I said, okay, let's experiment with those. And I found this, like, this amazing team that everyone was helping and that helped me like, learn a whole lot in a little amount of time and suck me in because it's actually open source, but with money. So, mm-hmm. And the team is it's amazing. So and I stayed around. Uh, here I am. Faku, what role do you actually have in the project today? 
I, I facilitate uh, with uh, bolts and strategies. I don't write much code. Okay. But what I do is help the strategists and the core developers do their work. And actually, Craig, what's your role in the project? Well, Yearn is a kind of magical place where we don't really have job titles or anything like that. And um, we really look for people to figure out what their calling is and do that uh, in different ways. And for me, that's mostly been, I have experience running companies in the past and um, has been around also a lot of experience in next generation forms of human coordination organization. And so I've really helped with the governance and the organization, the structures, the way that we work together and collaborate also like onboarding, hiring, things like that. Cool. I want to kind of go back to that origin story, though, DeFi summer, where it crystallized. What month, like what are we talking in the sort of lifespan of the DeFi summer was the YFI, the YDAO? Like when did that land, actually, just to give us a bit of a date? July 17th was the first time that uh, of 2020 was when the first YFI was, was farmed. Okay. And the farming went on until the 26th, so about nine days. Oh, wow. And then it stopped. So this was kind of what a unique feature of this project, the fact that there was this limited supply. This is sort of unique in the space, is it not? Is this the thing that was like, when you talked also about integrity, was this part of one of those pieces of integrity? I mean, it's actually kind of fascinating. It was never supposed to be just a week. You know, Andre has, has said that, you know, he expected that the governance would vote to continue minting. And there were a number of, there was about eight different governance proposals in the early days to try and extend the minting. Uh, and for one reason or another, it never happened. We were able to do another limited mint, I guess this is like February. So like seven months after the project launched in a kind of miraculous event. But um, no, the, you know, the thing is that when this all happened, like there was no organization, there was no company, mm -hmm. there was no foundation, there was no boss, there was no plan. You know, Andre was doing his amazing magical Andre thing, and all of us were just like, "Okay, what do we do?" You know, <laughs> and so we had to figure that all out from scratch. Uh, it, was, it was awesome. Cool. What role do you think the Wi-Fi token, the Yearn project, has in DeFi Summer? Was this coming? after AMMs were already picking up steam? Was it something that like accelerated it? Did it like, I'm just kind of curious, like what role that played? Because I do remember hearing a lot about it. Although I was very, but I definitely heard about it too late. <laughs> I guess I could say that much. I did not know about it while the like minting was happening. I would have heard about it later in the summer. So yeah, I'm just curious, like what impact do you think that actually had on that summer and the way that people were thinking about DeFi? I would love to hear Tarun's answer for this. I yeah, you know this, is, than bit, I do. this yeah. is a bit of a meta one. Yeah, I mean, if I were to give the chronology, I guess it was Comp started the fire. Okay. And then Curve had their weird rigged launch. I don't know. I don't know what to call the launch where someone randomly launches it. And that was after Wifey, actually. The Curve, the Curve yeah. launch, slightly. Slightly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I, I guess I think of the Curve launch and and. Wi-Fi is like very intimately connected given some of the early strategies, but yeah, you're, you're right. Uh, and I think the initial version of Yearn at the very beginning was like, I couldn't figure out because like Iron Finance had existed for a long time. It was sort of this Instadap competitor that had existed like since like January or February, 2020. And I think like a bunch of us who are around at that time kind of just remember it as like, oh, it's like Instadap, like the poor man's Instadap. <laughs> um, and it didn't, it had like, if you looked at the TVL at that time, it, that reflected that. 
Instadap was really sort of the number one place where people were like, oh, Compound and Aave, we don't want to figure out where to put our funds. We have some USDC. We want to optimize our yield between the two protocols. Let's put it in Instadap. And, and I think the thing that was interesting was that unless you were actually really paying attention closely, I don't think people saw that there was this huge leap that changed from that to like the strategies at that time. And so I think Yearn catalyzed pretty much the whole summer. Like I know all the Yam people and for instance, they were completely driven by watching Yearn be successful. So all of the other protocols that had fair launches that summer were basically kind of, they looked at Yearn and said, hey, we can do that too. Both from a, we can build a product that's similar, better, whatever. Um, but the interesting thing, and I think this is the the thing that we haven't, you know, a year later we can can say this is Yearn was much more unique uh, than a lot of the other things that launched after. So I, if I were to like kind of like you know rank things by importance, Comp is number one. There's just no doubt that started everything. Like investors were very kind of skittish about crypto until the comp launch. Mm. The comp launch brought back a lot of investors who were burned in 2017 um, back to this space and not viewing it as sketchy. And then number two is definitely urine. And then number three is sushi. But in terms of AMMs, I mean, the AMMs enabled things like urine to work, right? But they, I, I don't think that they're... We didn't have as much volume driven to them until urine happened. And then there were 5 million copycats. Mm. Like the copycat effect really just drove Uniswap's metrics, right? Because like every new coin that happened would just like add volume in an AMM. When Sushi arrived, because we did a three-part series on Sushi at the time last year, what did that mean for Yearn? Like as you were sitting there and the Sushi Swap thing happened, did you, did you care? Did that actually influence anything? Not really. I mean, I think um, <laughs> I think we, we love sushi. I mean, but at the time, you know, we partnered with them later. But at the time, from my perspective, it was just great. Another routing for our strategies. You know, okay. it, it wasn't a uh, substantially more than that. I don't know, Faku, do you have a different perspective? Yeah, at first there, there was a little bit of uh, drama around sushi and, and mm-hmm. the whole history. So we were always like uh, super careful about the, what we introduced into the strategies and stuff. So. But uh, as Strike said, yeah, we didn't really care. We it took us a little bit of time to start using it, and then well, we we partnered with them or whatever we we call that. You were like a little skeptical maybe at first, but then I mean, we ended up it ended up being wonderful for us because they're such an incredible team, and we've you know Andre and them have collaborated on a bunch of code, and we've been able to work with them in a number of different ways. So it's really expanded Yearn's offerings, and it's been a great mutual relationship. Hmm. Yeah, totally. I think one thing that we should probably do for our listeners is go a little deeper into what Yearn is. And one way to do that would be to talk about these products that live under the Yearn umbrella. Because before this interview, we were doing a little bit of chatting about what Yearn is. And it sounds like it's not a thing. It's not a dApp. It's like a collection of things. And then there might even be products within the Yearn umbrella, but also products outside of it, but within the ecosystem. So let's kind of like do a rundown of what these products are and what they do. So what would you call like the most important or the most visible yearn product? The vault, without doubt. Which one? Well, the vault. For me, for me at least. Yeah, for me at least. Okay. 
yeah, I'd say the vaults are our, our biggest product for sure, where the vast majority of the TVL is. Uh, then there's also the Earn or the Iron protocol, which was the first thing that Andre launched back in January of, of 2020, which just does a very simple job of finding the best rates between Aave, Compound, and DYDX. Um, there's been a few different versions of that. It's better, but it's a very simple protocol. Then there's also um, the Iron Bank, which is a collaboration with Cream, which is a mm-hmm. kind of borrow lending, uncollateralized lending tool. But then we start, it's so interesting, we were talking about this before, but like, what is urine, what is not urine is a blurry space. And I think that that's, that's a pretty cool thing, really. Um, it's something we're all getting used to. But in DeFi, you see this in a really kind of profound and new way that the, the boundaries, the membranes between these different products are much more permeable and between different teams, too. So there's also Keeper, you know, which is something that Andre launched, uh, which is not technically part of urine, but you know, there are two full-time people at urine basically working on that. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it has its own token. And, um, and then there's, uh, why gift, which is a project we started a while ago to do NFT kind of, uh, gifts and then, uh, coordinate, which is a new product that spun out of urine to do community grants and then a bunch of R and D projects like stable credit and all these other things. Uh, so in our research, we found something called woofy. Oh yeah, Woofy, of course. What is Woofy? <laughs> Can you explain what Woofy is? And where does that fall? Is that a product within Yearn or is that a project within the ecosystem? W- woofy is ultra hound money. And it's okay. a, uh, it's <laughs> one to a one million uh, with with wife, Wi-Fi. Uh, yeah. So it's it's pegged with Wi-Fi. And it's certainly a product of Yearn. Okay. Yeah, it started as, as an experiment to test the unit bias. You know, because uh, one Wi-Fi is uh, it's really really expensive. So the idea was to launch a token that was much much cheaper, but that it's pegged to the the Wi-Fi price. Cool. I kind of want to dig into some of the products that you just mentioned to just fl- like explore what those are too. So you mentioned Faku, the most kind of like the the core or most popular product is Vault, the Vault. Yeah. What is that? What does that mean? Like, how do people engage with it? That's a good question. Actually, the vaults are are like uh, containers of tokens where you put your money. And the vaults uh, use strategies, investment strategies, to accrue yield. The the particular thing about the vaults is that if you deposit uh, a token, let's say DAI, you will always have more DAI. So the yield is always compounding. Cool. And that's a, a really nice thing. With Vault, you do you don't have to like input both sides of a trade, right? You can just put a single token in, and it gets like I, I am curious though, like what is happening to it behind the scenes? Well, a, a very simple example is like governance staking. You have a governance token, okay? You know w- whichever you want, you stake that token into a smart contract, mm-hmm. a governance contract, and you receive rewards. That's that's fine. That that's what what happens with uh, most of the governance tokens. But wait, let let's make maybe an easier example here. Like, what if I have die? So if I put die into a vault, what happens to it? That seems to be easier, but it's not easier. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Are you but, doing but, a lot behind? Like from from my perspective as a user, it looks really easy. Yeah, but for example, curve is easier because it does one thing and one thing only with those, those curve tokens. You know, the, the like the, the LP tokens, token, the LP tokens from Curve. Yeah. 
So let's let's get let's use Curve as an example that is super simple, and then then we we can talk about Dai. Okay, S- sounds good. Do Curve uh, then. Okay. okay. So so the Curve tokens that you deposit into a vault are locked into Curve. Okay, to provide liquidity. Are you saying beforehand? Like, does the user lock it into Curve and then put it into Yearn, or do you put it into Yearn and then Yearn behind the scenes locks it into Curve? Uh, no, no, no. The user the the, the full. The full step-by-step is I have DAI. Let's say I have DAI and I want to deposit into the, a curve vault. Okay. I, I have DAI. I go to curve. I deposit into a into three pool, for example. Okay. I, I do a single side deposit and I get three pool tokens. Got it. I get those tokens. I go and deposit into the three pool vault. On yearn. On yearn. That's yearn. Got it. Yeah. So what yearn does, what the what the strategy behind that vault does, is to lock those, those tokens in curve again to receive CRV rewards. Mm-hmm. So that vault is getting rewards in CRV. Interesting. So you, it's putting it back in to the protocol and it's doing, I guess it's doing it like in the most efficient way, in a way yep. that a user wouldn't do, be able to do somehow. Yeah, because we're doing it in batch. So let's say we, we forward deposit and then all the tokens are locked into curve. So it's much more gas efficient. Aha. Uh-huh. And so you're saving on the gas in this case. Like if, if an individual was to do it, the amount of gas per the amount of money maybe wouldn't be worth it. But if they do it through you, you're kind of taking, like you're spreading that gas cost over a larger pool of, of these LP tokens or these stake tokens. Yeah, exactly. That, that, that's what we do. Yeah. Got it. That's the vault. But there's a detail with Curve. Those CRV are converted back into three pool tokens. Because the vault only manages one token and one token only. Got it. So as a user, you're actually earning the, what are you calling it? Three pool? Yeah, the, the, the underlying token. I think there's an important other piece to this to understand, which is kind of Andre's genius in launching Wi-Fi in the, in the first place was because he realized looking at the ecosystem of DeFi that there were so many different possible yield strategies that one person would never be able to create strategies against all of them. Mm. And so he needed to coordinate strategists. He needed to bring in people to write all of these different strategies. And one of the foundations of the Vaults program and Fubalubu Doggy's like incredible Vaults 2.0 system is the ability to have a, a whole group of strategists writing independent strategies, add them to Vaults, and they, they can then robotically go out and, and pursue the latest and greatest best ways to earn yield across the entire ecosystem. So our vaults can run actively up to 20 different strategies. And each of those strategies, like Faku was saying, can be extremely complex. But from the user perspective, it's very simple. You have one asset like ETH, and I want to earn yield on ETH. And I don't want to take all the time to go research all the different places I can do that. I just put it in the ETH vault. I know it's maintained by the top team of strategists with the highest security measures in all of DeFi. And uh, I'll earn yield. Super simple. Because what whatever it does, like with ETH, one of the strategies is a maker CDP strategy. It'll put the ETH in a maker. It'll borrow DAI against that. And then it'll utilize one of our other strategies to reinvest that DAI. And then the yield from that DAI strategy will then go to buy more ETH, compounding your initial asset. Cool. So you always stay within the single asset without ever losing any of your principal. It's only up only. Got it. I do want to go back to the DAI example because clearly I'm stuck on that. But <laughs> so Faku, I followed you on the staked curve and the fact that what you actually earn is not 
the what is it CVRE? It's not the it's CRV. not the beh- yeah. CRV. It's not the behind the scenes assets that are being earned. You would convert it back into the asset that had been deposited into the urn vault. And so, as a user, you're just getting what seems like interest on the token that has been deposited. Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, cool. Why is Dai more complicated? Because being a simple token, it's a token that everyone knows. So it's one of our biggest vaults. And uh, having a lot of tokens is good to socialize gas costs. But when you have like uh, 500 million, it starts to get complicated to get some serious yield. So the Dai vault has eight different strategies right now. Okay. So that's why I tell you it's, it's quite different because we, we're not using one thing. We're using Alva Omora. We're doing uh, Idle. We're using uh, Rook. So those are all different strategies that all compound and sell the rewards to die. Got it. How do you decide between these strategies? Oh, we have a, we have a whole process for that. Um, to, to, I'm guessing yeah. it's not someone with a switch, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's a lot of people arguing about it oh. and what's the very yield, what's the most safe way to do it. And there, there are a um, series of things that we have to decide. It's, uh, it's not only the strategy we're going to use, it's, it's also the amount of money we're going to put the vault. If you have eight strategies, it might not have the same allocation for all of them. Mm. So that we call it the debt ratio because we consider that strategists borrow money from the vaults. I see. So um, we decide, depending on the liquidity in the protocol, the APR or the, the, the amount of yield we're going to get and the safety of the, of the protocol. Got it. I think this kind of leads us a little bit into, and maybe what you said there is that there's like decision-making happening, that there's like some conversation happening. I I now want to talk a little bit about the governance. Is that something that the DAO would actually be making a decision on, or is the DAO focused on something else? Well, this is a good question. So imagine that you're, you know, a hundred new contributors all trying to work on an incredible software platform within a DAO where you have on-chain voting with Wi-Fi, what decisions do you make? What decisions can you make on your own? Which have to be proposals? It's, it's a non-trivial question. A lot of the time, stuff gets hidden in normal DAOs. Like uh, you see proposals flow through, but actually most of the actual, the real operational decisions are happening behind the scenes. Mm. And so that's also, by the way, natural. You know, human organizations of multiple people do not have only one consensus mechanism for deciding on anything. I get to decide autonomously what I say at a meeting. You know, I don't need any gating on that. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's other decisions that are are totally safe to make by yourself. And what we kind of cutting the chase, what we tried to do at Yearn is allow for the most amount of independent decision making possible, and to only protect things that need critical protection, and to create a transparent and malleable system to support that. And so we went from this completely unstructured space, you know, after the Inflaton field of the Wi-Fi gift, to um, to a totally kind of new system of governance we call constrained delegation, where Wi-Fi holders have the ultimate authority of delegating specific discrete powers, like the power to mint Wi-Fi, or mm-hmm. to pay salaries, or to decide on budgets, delegate them to specifically ratified groups of people like councils. But instead of it being just one council, there can be any number of them depending on what different groups of people need to make what different types of decisions and 
all of this is visible and all of it is controllable through votes. But then in the small groups, you can have whatever consensus process, whatever time scale or time lock is required for that specific type of decision making. I mean, this speaks to any blockchain governance. If you make the crowd decide all of the decisions, then you will have a large group of people with no specialized knowledge about those things. And so they're sort of very susceptible to politics or sway or, you know, groups trying to convince this whole crowd that doesn't really know the details. Well, it's, it's just not reality. Anyone that's saying that like an, organiza- an organization that's creating any type of complicated product, you know, the decisions are not being made, you know, by the DAO. Yeah. And so what you're doing is you've kind of like the larger DAO decides somewhat the funding channels, but once it goes into these smaller groups, then it's within that group to decide how they want to run it. Well, it's actually not just funding. It's actually a lot of the times you look at things like this and you think funding is the is the operative True. Uh, system to look at, but actually it's decision making. Um, so what we've done is we've enumerated the various critical decisions required to be made in that in this DAO in this organism and considered them according to the different axes that define them: time scale, impact, expertise, domain, all these different things. Uh, and then we've made each of those decision-making powers a discrete object that will eventually be an NFT once we put this mm. all on chain that can be basically traded by wifey holders and with a system of checks and balances, including veto power and things like that, so that you know the uh, the whole system can function safely. Would you say like the strategies that underline going back to the vault, are those strategies in one of these delegated groups or like is the decision making around that in a delegated group or is it within the larger DAO? It's a good example, actually. So um, Doggy's kind of genius in creating the the V2 vaults platform was to really separate strategies and vaults and kind of and, and see them as potentially adversarial. So that's reflected in the governance process. We have a, a multi-sig a three of 10 Gnosis multi-sig safe with, uh, for the strategist group and that they have the power of managed strategies. So they can create strategies and they test them at ape tax, which is outside of urine's kind of, it's a very experimental, uh, place to test new strategies with caps and they can manage those strategies. And then why dev why team apologies for the atrocious use of wise <laughs> is, <laughs> Why dev, why team, why decides, why what uh, strategies get added to the vaults. But in this way, it's a balance of power. So the why dev team has the power, add strategies. But then it's the why Chad, uh, the, the actual main, what we call the main multi-sig. What do you call it? The why, why Chad. Why Chad? For real? Why Chad. Like for real. Chad, Chad. Okay. Yeah. Why <laughs> cool. Chad. So why Chad is actually has the execution power. It has the um, execute transaction power power. Um, and so actually all of the decisions that get made in the whole environment flow, environment flow through YChad. And because there are basically safety and reputation valve, where it's it's a, a six of nine multi-sig with people like previously Tarun was on it, people with very high integrity, high reputation that we can trust to not rug anybody. Six of them would have to collude to, yeah. to rug the system. Now, this is a controversial point in DeFi safety. I actually believe it's a it's a safer mechanism than most because the other systems have worse flaws in a lot of ways. Mm. But when you have nine really high integrity, trusted public people, you're pretty safe that they're not going to rug you. And the six of nine, like this compares right. to another one that you'd mentioned was a three of 10, where you only need like a little less than a third to actually push something through. 
And here you're actually need two thirds. Right. And that reflects the difference in, in, in security concerns for each of these different decision-making bodies. So, you know, with managing the strategies, that power, there's little damage they can do. So uh, you'd only need three people to come to consensus. I want to check in on something you just said, like that exploratory space where you test things out. What's that called? Ape Tax. I think, Faku, you, you built that site, right? Yeah. In the early days, I built that. Cool. Now, now it's there's more contributors and it's more a group effort, but uh, yeah. What is that? Like, is it, it's an environment? What does that look like? It's a UI, super simple, just text and a few emojis. But the thing is that for Yearn, it's really, really difficult to do economical tests in testnet. So we, we really need to test with funds, I like see. with real funds in mainnet. So what... We, we encountered a lot of issues in testing using Brownie or Etherscan or super technical methods to, to deposit funds. So if we wanted to uh, attract some apes, <laughs> we needed a, a, a tiny UI to, to help them deposit and help us test. Wow. So you actually are like, it's real participants, but they're putting in like super high risk things that could blow up at any moment. Yeah, because if you go in, it's app.tax, you will see the, the warning signs signs all over Everywhere. it, like warning, warning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And they still fill up immediately. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. That's crazy, right? Still? It's, it is kind of crazy. I've never deposited any of them, but people do. But, but it, it's like a playground also, because sometimes you will find strategies that will never make to mainnet because they are too risky. Okay. But yeah, it's cool. Let's say we actually have a, a viable layer two that Yearn feels comfortable with as a community. Do you think the Yearn would ever move off multisigs to some sort of like hierarchical governance? You know, I, I mean, it's like you sort of are doing that right now, but presumably you could modify things like the compound governance contract or Ave governance contract too effectively represent these hierarchies where you basically, I mean, actually, I think Ave governance is about to add I th this uh, thing where you can like delegate responsibility for certain markets to certain people. And so it, it sort of replicates a little bit of the multi-sigs and teams. Um, so I was just curious, like, how important is it to get to the point of more autonomous systems for, for doing governance and delegation versus multi-sig? Do you view that as kind of crucial? Or do you think the current multi-sig strata of behavior is, is sort of the, the way you view the long term. I, I think it's pretty crucial to move to a new system. But we're taking a conservative approach. We're really testing the, the dynamics here on the social layer. So right now, we're basically implemented these different decision-making groups and telegram groups with processes, mostly because the friction of deploying it all as an on-chain system is too high. And it makes it slower to learn, slower to change. The things that are critical are on multi-sigs, on Gnosis saves, but the other things can just be done in a social consensus layer. And we've been talking to a lot of different groups, to Colony, to Orca Protocol, to Tally and um, Gnosis, uh, about ways to build what we want. And there's a bunch of people that want to build it, and we're excited to do that. We've thought about using Compound Bravo and Governor Bravo and Ave and all these different platforms for a lot of reasons. One is that it's, you know, a high friction point of the main multi-sig, all the transactions passing through there, you know, that's, um, it's a hard job operating that, you know, as, as you know, from experience, you know, it's a lot of transactions. Wow. 
also just like the time zone coordination oh, yeah. and like stuff like that, right? So it's like... Yeah, it's a pain. And um, it also just beyond just that point of failure potentially is, you know, the ethos of really putting the levers of power in the right places, you know, not having a gated decision-making process unless it's required kind of or important fundamentally for that decision-making flow. So giving those independent Y teams control over their own domains makes sense. It gives more responsibility, more accountability. So there's a number of ways to do that. And we will do that as soon as, you know, we feel it's uh, a technology that's ready. Tarun, you started that question mentioning L2s, but I don't actually understand the connection point there with the hierarchy of DAOs and L2s. Oh, it's just too expensive to do on mainnet. Oh, I see. Okay, so it's, it has a lot of the DeFi governance already moved or is planning to move to the L2? No, but I, I'm just asking more from a like logistical standpoint. You're, not gonna, you're definitely not going to do it on mainnet right now. A lot of the move to snapshot, to signature-based yeah. voting rather than gas voting because of the expense. Got it. And then also, you could also say vote delegation is a response to um, to gas costs as well. Hmm. This DAO, as you've described it, is a little. It's focused very much on like decision making delegation. But what going back to the funds and funding yeah. of things, like how how do funds work within that system? Yeah, that's great. So um, we did uh, a few governance proposal yips late last year to change around how fee flow all works, and as it is now, the urine team gets a, a fee share from all the revenue that goes, all the um, yield from the vaults. And then, you know, governance can spend that money through YIPs. And there's a couple empowered teams within urine that can spend that money. There's Y budget, which can create budgets. And then there's Y people, which can pay people. Then as part of that budget process, we give every month a community grants budget, which is currently uh, 60,000 bucks a month and is going to go up pretty soon. And the way that that's distributed is through a, a product that we've made called Coordinate. That's coordinate with an ape at the end. Okay. Coordinate. <laughs> a, a lot of whys and a lot of apes, huh? We're ridiculous. <laughs> um, and what that does is it's a really decentralized way to do grants. So back in the early days when we did community grants, you know, be fuck who me, a few other people would be like, well, who should we give money to? And we did it in a really beautiful way, which was like, who's doing cool stuff? Let's give them money. Yeah. It wasn't a quid pro quo. There was no expectations. We were just rewarding the community. But the top-down mechanism for that is quite limited. And we we're always missing people. Mm. Um, and people didn't really feel part of it. So we developed Coordinate to um, allow, you know, the wisdom at the edge of the network to make these decisions. So everybody, you know, once we deploy it on chain, you'll have an NFT badge that'll be your membership within a network like Urine or other ones. We have like 20 other protocols that are using it. And then everybody in that network gets to every month in an epoch give 100 give tokens, which are like poker chips, to everybody else in the network. And uh, at the end of that epoch, the uh, total allocation then just divide against the uh, monthly budget. And that's how the monthly budget gets distributed. Cool. The token that you're using, like the the governance token, is the Wi-Fi token, right? Yes. And that's a that's limited supply. So I, I kind of want to go back to the beginning of the launch of this thing. It was being minted. People were minting it here and there. I'm just wondering, like, does that mean that it's primarily those at the very beginning who either minted it or bought it early that actually get to vote? Like, maybe give me a little bit of the history of of the distribution, so we have a sense for like who is actually able to participate in this. It goes back to the you know July seventeenth, twenty twenty, when the first Wi-Fi came out, and Andre structured it in a really cool way with three. I think it was actually four different pools, 
it was kind of an education. It was like a sink or swim DeFi education. Like each of those pools was a different way to like, you know, there's a balancer pool, there's governance staking, you know, so it was all these different like core skills you need to operate as a DeFi Chad in this world. <laughs> but then after that, that was 30,000 Wi-Fi. That was it. And those were the governance tokens. That was the only, well, actually early on you could vote with Wi-Fi or BAL. Okay. Uh, but then there was then they changed it to just wifey. Got it. And that was your only the only power in urine came through those to voting with those uh, defined power that is. And then um, later we put for we took a ton of community effort and you know after seven months of working for like peanuts and um, not having any money, but seeing like all of the owners of wifey become you know ex- extravagantly wealthy. Yeah. And Andre earned nothing from this. The community came together and we put a uh, proposal to mint more Wi-Fi. And we minted an additional 6,666 Wi-Fi. And we used that to reward early contributors and to give good compensation packages to new contributors and to reward the community and also to have a nice treasury. How active, like how active are the Wi-Fi token holders? Like, is there a big turnout? If you say there's like limited amount, how active are they? Well, they've been active at different periods in our history. In the beginning, it was very active. And we would see like 50% quorum, like 50% voting activity of all holders and stuff for some of the early votes, mm. which was wild. But then it you know, it dropped off and then you get governance fatigue. And now it's actually pretty quiet, which I count as a major success because the governance is working. Wait, are there actually, now I'm just realizing though, a lot of the governance you talked about were multi-sig. So it's like three out of 10 or six out of nine multi-sig holders. So do you need the token actually? They don't need the token, but the token holders empower or disempower them. Okay, I see. That's the constrained delegation model where you delegate power to different groups. But wifey holders, the ultimate authority, they can always take it back. Like are those multi-sig holders then decided, like how, how would that, maybe that top six out of nine be decided? For, for the main multi-sig, which is the most critical like piece of infrastructure and security at Yearn, each signer has to be changed only through a wifey vote. Like an over-global one? Yes, there okay. has to be a total vote. And that's using that token? Using the wifey token, yeah. Got it. Interesting. Let's move a little bit into the mergers that you had mentioned. You mentioned a product, the Iron Bank, which is a collaboration with Cream. You've done collaborate. I don't know if I'm supposed to call these collaborations or mergers or like joint product releases. Pickle, Acropolis, Sushi Swap. Tell me, what are these? What are those things? Are these more like ecosystem projects? Like maybe give me a little bit of, give us a little bit of a sense for how you're working with these other teams. Yeah, you know, you're, you're right in struggling to choose a word. It's un- it's unclear what these what these types of relationships are. It's really new terrain, right? You think about a merger, and generally there is some financial transaction, you know, or some legal transaction or agreement, but there was none of that. In these cases, Andre initiated these this wave of mergers, and it was basically due to partnerships that would enhance our abilities, mutual abilities. So he needed a borrow lender to work on some code that he wanted to work on, and then Cream and Yearn, you know, merger kind of happened. We ironed out some rough ideas of how we'd work together, and we send a press release, and boom, you're merged. <laughs> um, no transact, no change of funds or anything like that, or change of control. And but it's actually re- been really beautiful because it was with Cream, with Sushi, with Acro with um, pickle with cover, and then an unmerger with cover. Um, you know, it's been a you know wild west <laughs> DeFi world. But what it's done is it's created a really nice kind of family ecosystem where you can all help each other out. 
Um, we're always down to jump in and help with one thing or another. People work kind of between teams occasionally. Mm-hmm. And Iron Bank is one example of that. It's a cream and urine partnership. But is it a strategy? Is it a behind the scenes strategy product? Or is it like a customer facing or like ape facing website where something is happening? That's kind of what I'm trying to understand if they're like super visible or if they're more like st- on the strategic side behind the scenes. There are different versions of this. So like um, Iron Bank is something that's more the protocol level. There's no UI. Fuck, was there a UI for Iron Bank? There's not, right? No, I think there's not. No. Yeah. Because it's uh, under collateralized loan, so you need the, to trust the other party. So it's it's what a wireless. But then like the, you know, pickle, there are pickle jars and stuff that are based on that collaboration and sushi stuff. And like the O sushi idea was something that Andre and, and Maki did together. And um, so it, it comes out in a bunch of different ways. Got it. What lessons have you learned from these sort of like M&A activities in this kind of new space? Because, it, you know, I think when things happened, and I guess everyone has seen the announcements and like when things first start, but, you know, kind of like if you were to retrospectively look back on these, do you feel like they drove engagement capital, whatever the metrics you were looking at? Or do you feel like they were more for community sentiment or, or and, and do you think they were successful? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think they were successful and there was mixed. You know, we were learned a lot from them. In some cases, we spent a lot of effort on things that didn't turn out the way we wanted them to. In other cases, we have like really healthy partnerships and new products that have come out of them. In a way, it's less of a merger and more of just like a, for lack of a better term, friendship of some sort. You know, it's like we're kind of trusting with each other and we help each other with stuff. And when that works well, great things come out of it. And the places, I think one of the lessons is have good boundaries. You know, this is a lesson for all things in life, you know, and and be clear about what, you know, your expectations are and what your boundaries are in these types of uh, business relationships. And that makes them work. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, one thing I, I think we're, we're certainly not at this portion of this economy yet, but in some ways, DAOs can only really make contracts with other DAOs. It's like, they can kind of do this kind of very ragged interaction with individuals and companies, but it's like very, you know, it like requires multi-sigs and requires some different trust model. In reality, DAOs can only really purchase services or products from other DAOs. So I guess this was sort of the first attempt at that. And I kind of imagine in a world where there's actually more expressiveness and less compute constraints, you could imagine that like, these are more deep relationships, but I was just, yeah, I was just more curious, like from, from that lens, how do you view these, you know, like, I feel like Iron Bank is a good example of like DAOs actually on on a technical level, having contracts with other DAOs. I think that's exactly right. And super interesting. So we don't need legal contracts. We don't need uh, any of that M&A stuff. But like, how does this get deeper and more intertwined? And I think one of the ways is like, well, you write actual code together, you know, and then your addresses are the binding, you know, because you both have control over it through the software layer. And then you can also think of it the future of governance through um, discrete powers. And if you look at all the different types of decisions that need to be made, sharing those, you know, and like that kind of defines who, you know, how an organism organization operates is who makes the decisions that, that was a good Freudian slip though because <laughs> it, it actually is kind of a little uh, uh, do, do you know what the concept of kiretsu I, I can't pronounce it correctly sorry it's like a Japanese so. word no 
Yeah, I feel like the urine M and A has reminded me a lot of that. Um, it's K E I R E T S U, which is, it's like this thing that Japanese companies did where they sort of formed mutuals in the 1980s, and they made these like weird community organizations where they managed certain parts of their funds together. Hmm. Interesting. I, I'm kind of fascinated to learn more about that because it sounds similar. Like. Is what what we call what we did is always a confusing thing. Like, what exactly are these mergers? Yeah, I think mergers is the wrong word. It, like in Japan and Korea, I think they had partially like after World War II, they had a lot more of these like sort of centrally planned industries. Um, and in the process, what you had was sort of this like weird coordination between competitors, potential competitors ah. that, you know, oftentimes you would call that antitrust. But in this case, it was like more about like how they shared insurance burdens or they shared like other things like that. It actually made the whole stronger. Yeah. Like they basically would like share health insurance world. across costs mm, across yeah. like multiple, you know, like instead of having to have like a government back the insurance, stuff like that. So it's not, a perfect analogy, but they didn't merge. They just like kind of scoped certain thing for commingling funds. Yeah. Cool. I have a question about somebody who has been brought up a couple times on this episode, Andre, this person who I've never met, um, have seen on Twitter, started Yearn. But tell me a little bit about like, what is Andre's role today? I mean, I guess in the past, Andre's role was develop cool things, ship them. People got excited, work with those people. But yeah, what, is, what does Andre do today in, that, in the urine project? Right now, he's a contributor, a really important one. But, I see. Uh, he's a contributor, actually, yeah. At the beginning, it was, was super interesting because there was not much coordination. So we were basically a bunch of people that were interacting and trying to do good stuff for, for urine. And one morning, you wake up, you pick up your telephone, and you see a medium article on Twitter by Andre. That's a new product. Okay. And wow. you have a lot of lot of people asking about that product that you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you have to promote it. You have to help with the UI, help with the fixes. So what you do is you, you read about the product, you try to read the code, you ask Andre a few questions, and there you go. So Andre is a really good prototyper and a shipper. I could say a shipper, the, the original doer. But yeah, right today he's a he's a contributor, an important one, but a contributor. Would you say does the Yearn Project have a leader? Does it have a group of leaders? You have the multi-sig, and I know maybe the even the term is annoying, but like, is there some sort of head of Yearn? There's about a uh, uh, fifty leaders at Yearn. Okay, yeah. I, I think of it as a leader full organization, and our goal is to really let, allow everyone to lead. But there is no overarching leadership, no executive board, no top-down command and control. And actually, we've worked really hard to spread that type of formalized power out and allow for natural leadership to emerge as much as possible and to be fluid and change. Is that a challenge? Does that get challenged? Like, have you seen attempts? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, it's certainly a challenge. I mean, it's, you know, one of the, I mean, this, this is the most fun stuff in the world. Like, it's so crazy. Like, you create this unstructured space with all this possibility, right? And when people come into that environment, it's not like you immediately take on some next level, like enlightened mind of how to work together. Yeah. You take your previous experience, you project it on this new space and you're like, okay, well, who's my boss? You're like, <laughs> okay, well here, like everyone does what they, 
you know, their own thing. And you're supposed to be guided by your own kind of wisdom. You're like, okay, great. Well, who do I report to? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and it's not that bad. I'm characterizing it, but, but this is natural for all of us. I see myself yeah. doing that. I'm like, okay, well, who's going to, am I doing okay? You know, like, who's like going to give all, me some credit when I did it? Yeah. We all have this. So it's like, it's, it's extremely interesting and challenging to create structure and culture and processes that can support this kind of new, new frontier of, uh, of organizational design. It is totally, I mean, that's a super interesting, exciting part of the space, but it, it always does feel quite experimental. And one question I have now is how big is this group? Because I, th- I don't know if you've yeah. read about like organizational structures, but it's like, there does seem to be a cap at which point very decentralized structure breaks down. And I'm guessing you're under that cap. Dunbar's which, number, are you thinking? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, we're we're there's 35 like full-time compensated people and then there's like another 70 from active contributors. So it's about 100 people and it's pretty fluid. You know, people move in and out in yeah. different ways. And also not all of those people are active in the, you know, kind of core the center of the network kind of coordinating functions. Some of them just do a piece of work, drop it off and then float off. Mhm. Interesting though. Yeah. Do you have hope for it? Do you feel like it's, I mean, you did talk about having to potentially change these tools to be able to like maintain it somehow. It's always evolving. And oh, do I have hope for it? I mean, I I am, I am here because I feel like this is the hope of the planet. Yeah. You know, I don't say that like, like, yeah. And so I, I think of the stuff that we're doing in DeFi in particular, it, I was never interested in finance. I actually don't know much about finance. Like what I'm interested in is human coordination mm-hmm. and how do we scale you know, our collective organizations, organisms, so that we can love each other and that we can be free and creative and do the, the work and solve these incredibly wicked challenges on the planet so that we can move past resource wars and zero-sum games and win-lose theories like and the doubt, like you can try and go fight in, in Washington on this stuff and lobby and whatever, but that's like, can't fix a broken tool with a broken tool kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You need to do fundamentally new structures of, of human cognition, of collective intelligence. And that's what we're doing. And the reason why DeFi is a perfect place is because you have the blood flow, you have the money, right? Which is the blood of the collective. And that gives it life. It sounds like you're writing your novel by doing this. <laughs> <laughs> You don't know how accurate that is, actually, because uh, my novel was about uh, this exact type of thing. But then I was like, you know what? I'm not going to write the fucking science fiction novel. I'm going to build it. You're going to live it. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Let's do the novel you want to be in the world. <laughs> something I want to talk about before we sign off, something that gets talked about a lot right now in our space is MEV and currently reorgs. And I'm really curious, what are you looking at? Does the Yearn Project care? How does it care? And, and can you do anything? Like, are, are you like trying to build around this for this? Yeah, I'm just really curious what a DeFi project like yours focused on strategies, how you would engage with this problem? Yeah, that's, that's super technical, the MEV. So I will do my best to, to say it in simple terms. Uh, but the MEV is something we need to fight with, unfortunately, because MEV is the the minor or the maximum extractable value uh, of the chain. So it's like money sitting there that it's waiting to be taken. And someone will take it. So far, it was a very, it's sort of you needed a special technical expertise to actually access it. And I'm sure there were some miners doing that, but recently it's been productized. So the idea of accessing that value has been made a lot easier. 
But what does that mean for you guys? It's not just that it's been made easier. It's that you've crowdsourced kind of like urine strategists. You've crowdsourced the people to actually find the optimal ordering versus like the MEV searchers doing all the work is like, it's not just like, hey, you've commoditized things. You've commoditized it in that you've crowdsourced the MEV, which I think actually is interesting for projects in some ways. Okay. Yeah, it's super interesting. But for us, it means uh, we need to protect our users because that's necessary to have a like a mature market because arbitrage uh, and all that kind of stuff, it's happening using the, the MEV. It's like that, that's actually the MEV arbitraging between two values or the hidden transactions and the sandwich attacks and the ankle block blocks attacks, those technical terms. And we're actually fighting it because our vaults, when they invest and when they swap tokens, uh, when they do any economical activity, they are subject to MEV attacks. So what we implemented uh, yesterday or this week, actually, is Mm. uh, stealth transactions using what uh, Tarun mentioned uh, that he was referring to is using flashbots. So we are using flashbots to send stealth transactions so no one can see them in the mempool before they are executed. So we avoid those sandwich attacks or those that those kinds of attacks, the MEV attacks. Got it. And these were the stealth transactions that would go through a trusted execution environment, SGX or something like that? They don't right now. Right now you trust Flashbots because they run the only... I mean, they've been under a lot of spam too lately. But in the medium term, they want to move to SGX. In the long run, they want to do something else. But I think, uh, let's just say the problems of getting too big too quick have made it too hard to switch quickly, if that makes sense. Uh. Also, SGX just sucks for a lot of reasons. I mean, from a developer's standpoint, mm-hmm. like, like they, their entire stack is written in Go, but like to interface such SGX, it's only C++. So there's just like a lot of like engineering hurdles <laughs> that I think, unfortunately, are make it hard. Last thing on this, and like I actually haven't dug in very deeply to this actually at all, this bandit thing, is this going to have any impact on projects like Yearn? I don't know if I'm saying, is what's the name the of the time thing? bandit? Time bandit. It's just forcing a reorg to do a particular orientation. I think to Faku's point though, the thing you're going to see more of is just basically protocols doing the MEV for their users. And like that's just going to be the... The equilibrium isn't going to be like... I, I, I think certain people have uh, wanted to maybe make their public presences more elevated by trying to talk about this a lot. But I, I would say that A, this stuff has been around forever. And B, the protocols and apps capturing the value for their users is is going to be like there's going to be some weird equilibrium where it's going to be all the different protocols fighting each other instead of the users. Interesting. Cool. I want to say thank you for sharing with us the history of Yearn, going through the kind of DAO, the governance, how this works, how it's changed. Also some of your thoughts on the the newer newer phenomenon happening in the DeFi or general Ethereum space. Yeah. So I want to say a big thank you to you, Trake and Faku for coming on the show. Thanks, guys. It was really fun to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it was great. Thanks a lot. One last thing. Trake, Tracheopteryx. Yeah. Where does that name come from? I should have asked you at the beginning, but now I just like, I can't end without asking. It's an amazing name. It's a mixture of a human trachea, the organ of song, and the first feathered dinosaur, which is an interesting transition point. Oh, is this also going to feature in the sci-fi novel, maybe? Maybe it will. Maybe well, I it hadn't <laughs> to this point, but I'd probably offer it under that name now. Very cool. 
All right. So thanks again to both of you. Thanks to Tarun for coming on to co-host. I want to say thank you to the podcast producer, Andre. Thank you to the podcast editor, Henrik. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. 